New York, this is Democracy Now! No, no House seat, no office in this land is more important than the principles that we are all sworn to protect. And I well understood the potential political consequences of abiding by my duty. Liz Cheney, Trump's chief House Republican foe, has lost her primary in Wyoming. In Alaska, Senator Lisa Murkowski, another Republican Trump critic, will move forward to the general election. Alaska also has ranked choice voting. We'll get an update from the nation's John Nichols. Then, as the United Nations warns, a staggering 95 percent of Afghans are not getting enough to eat. The Biden administration says it will rule out releasing some $7 billion in foreign assets held by Afghanistan's central bank on U.S. soil. We'll get response from a member of the Central Bank of Afghanistan. To avoid economic and humanitarian catastrophe, the United States should release Afghanistan reserves that belong to Afghan people and to the Central Bank of Afghanistan once its capacity building is addressed. We'll also speak with Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Unfreeze Afghanistan. Then President Biden signs into law the sweeping $739 billion Inflation Reduction Act. This bill is the biggest step forward on climate ever, ever. Look at what's in the IRA with Professor Ashley Dawson, author of People's Power, Reclaiming the Energy Commons. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Voters in Alaska and Wyoming went to the polls Tuesday for primary elections. In Wyoming, pro-Trump primary challenger Harriet Hageman has unseated incumbent Congress member Liz Cheney, who's emerged as the leading anti-Trump Republican in Congress. Cheney voted for Trump's second impeachment and is serving as vice chair of the House January 6th committee. Hageman won about 66 percent of the vote. Cheney received about 29 percent. Cheney, who is the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney, spoke to supporters last night in Jackson, Wyoming. Two years ago, I won this primary with 73 percent of the vote. I could easily have done the same again. The path was clear. But it would have required that I go along with President Trump's lie about the 2020 election. It would have required that I enable his ongoing efforts to unravel our democratic system and attack the foundations of our republic. That was a path I could not and would not take. In Alaska, former governor and 2008 Republican vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin appears set to be one of four candidates to advance to November's general election for Alaska's sole House seat, which was held by Don Young, who died in March. Meanwhile, Alaskan Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski and her fellow Republican rival Kelly Shabaka, who is endorsed by Trump, have both advanced to November's general election. We'll have more on the primary results later in the broadcast with the nation's John Nichols. President Biden signed a sweeping $739 billion bill to address the climate crisis, reduce drug costs, and establish a 15 percent minimum tax for large corporations. This bill is the biggest step forward on climate ever, ever, and it's going to allow 
It's going to allow us to boldly take additional steps toward meeting all of my climate goals and the ones we set out when we ran. It includes ensuring that we create clean energy opportunities in frontline and fence-line communities that have been smothered, smothered by the legacy of pollution and fight environmental injustice that's been going on for so long. At a signing ceremony at the White House, President Biden handed his pen to conservative Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, who agreed to back the deal after securing a number of major handouts to the fossil fuel industry. Manchin's the largest recipient of fossil fuel industry donations in Congress. We'll have more on Biden's signing of the Inflation Reduction Act later in the broadcast. The New York Times has revealed the FBI interviewed two of Donald Trump's top White House lawyers earlier this year about classified documents being stored at Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. White House counsel Pat Cipollone and his deputy Patrick Philbin are the highest officials known to be interviewed as part of the probe. The New York Times reports Philbin tried to help the National Archives retrieve the materials, but was opposed by Trump, who reportedly said, it's not theirs, it's mine, unquote. Last week, the FBI searched Trump's residence and seized 11 sets of documents. The unsealed search warrant revealed Trump is being investigated for violating the Espionage Act, obstruction of justice and criminal handling of government records. The Russian defense ministry has admitted a major blast at a Russian ammunition depot in occupied Crimea on Tuesday was caused by an act of sabotage. On Tuesday night, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky thanked those who, quote, opposed the occupiers. He also urged Ukrainians to stay away from Russian military bases and ammunition stores. Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin has accused the United States of trying to drag out the war in Ukraine and to provoke China over Taiwan. He spoke at the Moscow Conference on International Security. The situation in Ukraine shows that the United States are trying to drag out this conflict, and they act in exactly the same way, fueling the potential for conflict in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. We also see that the collective West is seeking to extend its bloc system to the Asia-Pacific region, similarly to NATO in Europe. For this purpose, bellicose military political alliances are being formed, such as AUKUS and others. The Israeli newspaper Haaretz is reporting an internal Israeli military report has acknowledged an Israeli airstrike near the Jabalia refugee camp in Gaza killed five Palestinian children August 7th. The youngest child was four years old. The finding contradicts public statements by Israeli officials who claimed the Palestinian children had died after being hit by an errant rocket fired by the militant group Islamic Jihad. Over the past two weeks, Israeli forces have killed 19 Palestinian children. The United Nations has denounced the surge in child deaths as, quote, unconscionable. Kenya is facing a political crisis following last week's presidential election, with the apparent runner-up rejecting the results of the vote. On Monday, the chair of Kenya's election commission announced Deputy President William Ruto had won the election. But four of the seven members of the election commission have disavowed Ruto's victory and are critiquing how the votes were counted. The apparent runner-up, former Prime Minister Raila Odinga, has also refused to concede. The figures announced by Mr. Shibukati are null and void and must be quashed by a court of law. In our view, there is neither a legally and validly declared winner nor a president-elect. 
Former Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva has formally launched his campaign to challenge Brazil's far-right President Jair Bolsonaro in October's election. On Tuesday, Lula held his first campaign rally at a car factory outside Sao Paulo. Lula denounced Bolsonaro's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has killed nearly 700,000 Brazilians. Lula also vowed to reshape the role of government in Brazil if he returns to office. We don't want a government that distributes weapons. We want a government that distributes books. We don't want a government that feeds hate. We want a government that feeds love. While polls show Lula in the lead, fear is growing Bolsonaro may try to steal the election, possibly with help from the Brazilian military. European officials are expressing hope that a new Iranian nuclear deal is within reach. On Monday night, Iran submitted a written response to what's been described as the final text of the new agreement. Officials have told The New York Times Iran has asked for some clarifications, but has not raised any significant new objections to the text. The Biden administration has not yet submitted its response to the final text. Federal officials have announced a new round of water cuts to the states of Arizona and Nevada as an extreme drought has led to plummeting water levels on the Colorado River, which supplies water to 40 million people in the West. Lake Mead and Lake Powell, the two largest reservoirs on the river, are now about 75 percent empty. Seven states are part of the century-old Colorado River Compact, which determines how water is distributed among the states. Tanya Trujillo, an official at the U.S. Interior Department, said, quote, in order to avoid a catastrophic collapse of the Colorado River system and a future of uncertainty and conflict, water use in the basin must be reduced, she said. First Lady Jill Biden has tested positive for coronavirus. She's been prescribed the antiviral drug Paxlovid and is reportedly experiencing mild symptoms. This comes nearly a month after President Biden first tested positive. Meanwhile, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has also tested positive. He, too, is reportedly experiencing mild symptoms. A coalition of immigrant rights organizations have sued the data broker LexisNexis for collecting detailed personal information on millions of people and then selling it to governmental entities, including Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. The lawsuit alleges LexisNexis has helped create a, quote, massive surveillance state with files on almost every adult U.S. consumer, unquote. The groups also accuse ICE of using information collected by LexisNexis to circumvent local policies in sanctuary cities. Plaintiffs in the lawsuit include organized communities against deportations, mi gente, and just futures law. And the Academy of Arts and Sciences has formally apologized to indigenous activist and actress Sachin Littlefeather. In 1973, she took the stage at the Oscars on behalf of Marlon Brando, who boycotted the ceremony to protest Hollywood's portrayal of Native Americans. Some members of the audience booed and mocked Littlefeather as she addressed the awards ceremony wearing traditional Apache clothing. The actor John Wayne reportedly attempted to remove her from the stage, but was restrained by six security guards. Clint Eastwood mocked Littlefeather later in the ceremony. This is part of what Sachin Littlefeather said on that night in 1973. He very regretfully cannot accept 
this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry, excuse me, and on television in movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. In September, the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures will host Sheen Little Feather for an evening of, quote, conversation, healing, and celebration. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. This week marks one year since the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, after more than two decades of U.S. war and occupation. As the United Nations warns, a staggering 95 percent of Afghans are not getting enough to eat, with that number rising to almost 100 percent in households headed by women. The Biden administration announced this week that it had ruled out releasing roughly $7 billion in foreign assets held by Afghanistan's central bank on U.S. soil. That's according to The Wall Street Journal, which reports Biden's decision not to return the funds came after he ordered the assassination of al-Qaeda's leader in Kabul. On Monday, State Department spokesperson Ned Price disputed reports that the Biden administration has ruled out releasing the billions of dollars in foreign assets. I don't uh, mean to play media critic today, um, but uh, there has also been some inaccurate, highly inaccurate reporting today. Uh, regarding the ultimate disposition of the $3.5 billion in reserve funds. Uh, the idea that we have decided not to use these funds for the benefit of the Afghan people is simply wrong. It is not true. Uh, our focus right now is on ongoing efforts to enable uh, the $3.5 billion in licensed Afghan central bank reserves uh, to be used precisely for the benefit of the Afghan people. The uh, presence of Ayman al-Zawahiri on Afghan soil with uh, the knowledge of senior members of the Haqqani Taliban uh, network only reinforces uh, the deep concerns that we have regarding the potential diversion of such funds to terrorist groups. Uh, so right now we're looking at mechanisms uh, that could be put in place uh, to see to it uh, that these $3.5 billion in, in preserved assets uh, make their way efficiently and effectively uh, to the people of Afghanistan in a way that uh, doesn't make them ripe for uh, diversion to terrorist groups or elsewhere. For more, we're joined by two guests. Shah Marabi is the chair of the Audit Committee of the Central Bank of Afghanistan, professor of economics at Montgomery College. He's also a former advisor to the Afghan president. His recent piece for Al Jazeera is headlined, Afghanistan's economy is collapsing. The U.S. can help stop it. Also with us, longtime peace activist Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Unfreeze Afghanistan and Code Pink. She last visited Afghanistan in April with an American women's peace and education delegation. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Shah Marabi, let's begin with you. Uh, can you clarify what the U.S. is doing, what this $7 billion is, why the U.S. is holding on to it, if they are? Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, it's important, I think, to mention the fact that President Biden, on February 11th, uh, split Afghanistan Reserve, which was $7 billion, into two. That is $2.5 billion that uh, to be used, as uh, President Biden mentioned, and I quote, 
for the benefits of Afghan people and the remaining 3.5 billion to be set aside for the September 11th plaintiff to litigate. Now, the policy of splitting this obviously uh, is, has uh, uh, created uh, a situation where the central bank of Afghanistan uh, could easily, this policy could easily decapitalize the central bank and in turn could easily dismantle it. So establishing in a way a mechanism that will uh, allow central bank to use its reserve for the purpose and the main purpose of the central bank is to bring price stability uh, and then to strengthen the currency and also stabilize the economy uh, is, is very important. I think this function cannot be performed. Uh, the central bank cannot fulfill its primary uh, objective of price stability uh, that is done by continuously engaging in foreign exchange auctions. And uh, to prevent depreciation of local currency against foreign currencies and be able to bring price stability. Because the ordinary Afghans, if there's no stable prices, they are not going to be able to buy basic household goods at reasonable prices. Uh, reducing inflation will have to be done because inflation now is at 52%. And, and uh, auctioning will allow, uh, allow a situation where this inflation of double digit of 52% could be reduced to a single level. Because higher prices are one of the major causes of poverty. Now, more than 70% of the world's poorest people are women. And you've got women and children who cannot go ahead and afford to buy the basic necessities. They cannot buy uh, bread. They cannot buy cooking oil. They cannot buy sugar and fuel. I think it's very important that Afghans be allowed to have their cash to be able to buy these basic necessities, to be able to have access to cash. Uh, an Afghanistan reserve need to be returned to the central bank so that ordinary Afghans as well as businesses would be able to have access to USD, to be businesses specifically to be able to pay for imports and then ordinary Afghans to be able to get access to the deposits because now the cap, the cap that is placed on, uh, on ordinary Afghans and businesses, even at that cap, many of ordinary Afghans and businesses cannot get access because there's a shortage of reserve in the country. So I had suggested uh, back in September that the United States should allow limited monetary release of reserve to pay for imports. And I suggested 150 million uh, and access could be could be conditioned, I said, on specific use, and that is for auctioning purposes. And this can be independently monitored and audited by an external so, auditing firm. So, and Ned if Price, if the State if Department, not, then it should be terminated. The Ned yes. Price, the State Department spokesperson, directly addressed the issue of the money going to the Afghan Central Bank. This is what he said. We don't see uh, recapitalization of the Afghan Central Bank uh, as a near-term option. Uh, we've engaged and we still continue to engage Afghan technocrats uh, with the central bank uh, for uh, many months now about measures to enhance the country's economic, uh, macroeconomic stability. Uh, we just don't have confidence that the institution's safeguards uh, and uh, monitoring are in place to manage those assets uh, responsibly. Sean Marabi, uh, he's directly addressing your bank, the central bank of Afghanistan, says can't handle it. It, this is what, what I said. There has to be a way, a mechanism established to be able to test this. 
as a, as a, as a trust-building mechanism. As I said here, that what needs to be done, release this thing and monitor it. Independently have auditors trying to see if the money is going to be used for the purpose for which it is uh, designed to, to be used, and that is to auctioning and bring, bring price stability. And this process could build confidence and could be considered a trust-building mechanism between United States government and Taliban. Now, United States government needs to be actively engaged, and I think in dialogue should continue, as it is, uh, I've argued, in the best interest of the United States. Now, and I think this temporary pause that exists now, I think, is understandable. But United States' strategic interest in the long run dictates that, that there has to be a dialogue and engagement. Otherwise, I think I would argue the United States would pay a higher price if Afghanistan collapses, because a failed state could create more space for terror organizations. Nadia Benjamin, yes. the Wall Street Journal reports um, uh, that the Biden administration has ruled out uh, releasing the billions of dollars in foreign assets um, because of um, their learning of and then killing the uh, al-Qaeda leader in Kabul, Ayman al-Zawahri. Your response? 38 million uh, Afghan people should not be punished because a 71-year-old figurehead of al-Qaeda uh, was living in Kabul. This money belongs to the Afghan people. And the U.S. for 365 days has been holding their money in a New York vault while Afghan people are boiling grass to eat, are selling their kidneys, are watching their children starve. This is unconscionable. That money has to be returned. The U.S. for 20 years built up a central bank in Afghanistan with a monitoring mechanism. It's one of the only things that continues to exist after 20 years of U.S. occupation. And now it wants to hollow out that central bank, create a separate mechanism. I think the Biden administration, instead of listening to the war hawks in his own party and the Republicans, should listen to the women's organizations in Afghanistan the 9-11 family members, uh, the economists from around the world, including Joseph Stieglitz, the human rights organizations, who have all said that this humanitarian crisis can only be solved by reinvigorating the economy and returning the Afghans' money to their central bank. Um, we're here talking about—I don't know if it's seven, um, uh, whether it's seven billion dollars or nine billion dollars, but half of that, because the other half, the Biden administration is determined would go to the 9/11 victims. If you could respond to that, Medea, and also this issue—I mean, you're a longtime women's rights activist, a feminist of the enormous crackdown on women and girls in Afghanistan how that money would not go to supporting uh, the Taliban who are doing this. The uh, lawsuits by a small number of 9-11 family members uh, really will enrich the lawyers more than anyone else. And I think we should listen to the September 11th families for Peaceful Tomorrows, who have spearheaded a letter that 76 family members have signed, calling, saying that not a penny of that money uh, should go for 
uh, the 9-11 families. It should all go for the Afghan people. Uh, as a feminist, I am certainly opposed to the policies of the Taliban, which have been horrific in not letting girls go to secondary schools and forcing women to uh, cover themselves when they're out in public, in saying they can't travel around the country without a guardian. All of these things must be opposed. And we are in touch with the Afghan women every day uh, that are working to change those policies. But they are already victimized by the Taliban. They should not be victimized by the United States states by stealing the funds that they need to get their economy going. There are about 50,000 women businesses that are still trying to function in Afghanistan. They need access to the bank to pay uh, for the salaries of their staff. Uh, pensioners, women, need uh, access to the bank to get their pensions. Uh, so as a feminist, and I think all feminists should say, uh, let's help reinvigorate the Afghan economy so that people can get jobs and that they can feed their children. Shamaravi, your final comments, and would you support a third party getting that money? I think a mechanism uh, that uh, is under negotiation that will enable uh, the transfer of funds to be used for, from my point of view, for price stability and also for reducing the volatility in exchange rate, I think is a positive move. Now, uh, there has been, as I said, a, uh, in, in one way or another, a pause. And the pause, hopefully, is temporary. And I think negotiation and dialogue that will enable the central bank of Afghanistan to have access to its reserve must continue, as it is not only in the best interest of the United States, but it's in the best interest of ordinary Afghans. I want to also mention that there's no, that there's no increase in humanitarian aid can compensate for the macroeconomic uh, harm of higher prices for basic commodities. That is, you know, in the far banking collapse or balance on payment crisis. And I think severe consequences could uh, ripple throughout Afghan society uh, and harm the most vulnerable people. And I think we have them, uh, we have the tools and mechanism to be able to reverse that. And I think the freezing of Afghan asset will not very important. It will not weaken the uh, interim Taliban administration, while the overwhelming impact of that would be uh, on, it will fall on innocent Afghans who have suffered decades of, decades of war and poverty. And I think while we have the means to be able to reverse this, why not go ahead and, and, and reverse this worse in, uh, economic and humanitarian crisis. And I think the best way is by having releasing the Afghanistan reserve that rightfully belonged to Afghan people who established an independent central bank and, and allowed the central bank to be able to manage and maintain these reserve and to be able to safeguard the international value of Afghani, which is the national currency, and restore and keep and maintain price stability and also be able to allow for and foster liquidity and also bring confidence in Afghanistan money and exchange rate policy. Shamaravi, we want to thank you for being with us, chair of the Audit Committee of the Afghanistan Central Bank, longtime economist, economics professor at Montgomery College. And Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink, Unfreeze Afghanistan. Please stay with us. We come back. want to ask you about the Biden administration's sanctions on Cuba, making it difficult for Cuba to effectively respond to a recent tragic fire. Also, the military budget 
that has been proposed, and the sentencing of a Saudi feminist to decades in prison in Saudi Arabia. Stay with us. Under a palm tree by Omara Portuando and Pio Levia. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. As we look at the aftermath of one of Cuba's worst environmental disasters in decades and the largest oil fire in its history. Last month, a fire at an oil storage facility in the western province of Matanzas began after lightning struck part of the oil depot. One person killed, some 120 injured. The blaze worsened electricity outages on the island, which relies heavily on imported foreign oil to generate electricity, already facing an energy crisis due to soaring global food costs. For more, we continue with Code Pink's Medea Benjamin, who's been following this closely, spent many uh, uh, visits to Cuba. You tweeted, it's infuriating that Biden administration sanctions on Cuba make it difficult for Cuba to effectively respond to the recent tragic fire. Tell Biden to take Cuba off the list of state sponsors of terrorism, unquote. Can you lay out what's happened since this fire, the largest in Cuba's history? Yes, uh, it's very difficult for groups like us in the United States that want to help Cuba and have been raising money uh, to send the goods to Cuba because the banks in the U.S. Uh, won't deal with funds uh, destined for Cuba. Companies don't want to sell if you tell them that the destination is Cuba. Uh, we have to go around a lot of uh, um, uh, um, issues that the U.S. puts in the path. And that is because Cuba is on the state sponsor uh, of terrorism list, which is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, it was put on that list because Cuba had hosted uh, rebels from Colombia for peace talks. Uh, those peace talks are resuming now with the new government of Colombia uh, that has said Cuba should be off of that list. Uh, Cuba, if anything, is a state sponsor of global health care, sending doctors and nurses around the world, uh, not a state sponsor of terrorism. And so we have a campaign. We would love people to join on the Code Pink website uh, to push Congress and Biden to take Cuba off that list so that we can help Cuba in times like this uh, to get the medicines, to help the burn victims, to uh, reinvigorate uh, the economy, especially in Matanzas, where people are really suffering as a result of this fire. Well, Medea Benjamin, I wanted to now move on to Saudi Arabia. You're the author of a number of books, including Kingdom of the Unjust, behind the U.S.-Saudi connection. I want to ask you about uh, the Saudi women's rights defender Salma al-Shahab, who's been sentenced to 34 years in prison 
over her advocacy. It's reportedly the longest sentence ever given to a Saudi woman's rights activist. She was initially sentenced to a six-year prison term over tweets she posted critical of Saudi Arabia's treatment of women. But an appeals court last week increased the sentence to 34 years behind bars and banned al-Shahab from leaving the kingdom for another 34 years. Human rights advocates are warning of worsening conditions for Saudi women as Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman intensifies his crackdown on dissent and strengthens his relationship with the Biden administration. This is a barbaric sentence of a woman who's a Ph.D. student in uh, Leeds. She was going to Saudi Arabia to visit family uh, and was detained there for her tweets. She had 2,000 followers. That was the extent uh, of her Twitter supporters and 159 followers on Instagram. Uh, this woman uh, should not be in prison. And this draconian sentence is just in, uh, uh, unconscionable. And it shows that MBS is no reformer. It shows that the United States uh, should not be selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. Uh, the crackdown on women continues. And I, I think this is a, uh, a, a, a something that we should all be pushing the Biden administration to uh, demand her release and to stop uh, cozing up to the dictator MBS in Saudi Arabia. Medea Benjamin, you are co-founder of Code Pink. In our next segment, we'll be talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, shaped by Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, once participated in a Code Pink protest. And I wanted to get your response to this. The Associated Press reported this week on how Sinema, quote, single-handedly thwarted her party's longtime goal of raising taxes on wealthy investors, received nearly a million dollars over the past year from private equity professionals, hedge fund managers and venture capitalists whose taxes would have increased under the new bill. Uh, the AP reports Cinema forced a series of changes to the IRA, including cutting a proposed carried interest tax increase on private equity earnings while, quote, securing a $35 billion exemption that'll spare much of the industry from a separate tax increase other huge corporations now have to pay. Um, now, you have a connection to her because Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona once joined in Code Pink protests, including against um, Israel and APAC. Your thoughts on her now? Well, we don't know what happened, how Kristen uh, Cinema has been possessed from being a one-time anti-war activist uh, to being uh, such an obstacle for any progress in the United States. Uh, we have watched her uh, in horror and tried to protest her along the way. And um, now that we see that she is a supporter of every increase in the Pentagon budget, uh, the uh, enormous increases that are now coming out of the Biden administration uh, and increased more in the House and then increased more in the Senate when you have people like Kristen Sinema, uh, who disregards the real needs of people uh, that are her constituents and instead uh, promotes the interests of big corporations, including the weapons industries. And finally, the military budget that President Biden has released for 2023, $773 billion. The total military budget reportedly exceeds $800 billion. Your response? 
We just talked about Afghanistan and the U.S. wound down this war a year ago. You would think there would be a, quote, peace dividend in which the Pentagon budget would go down. Instead, it's increased uh, over $100 billion from during the Trump time. And now the House has put another $37 billion on top of what Biden asked for, and the Senate will add more to that. Uh, it just shows how we have to build a stronger, more effective uh, peace movement together with environmentalists, people working for uh, a good health care system, an end to the student debt. All of us have to come together to say uh, this money should be taken out of the Pentagon budget and put into the real needs of people and the climate. Medea Benjamin, we want to thank you for being with us, co-founder of Code Pink and Unfreezing Afghanistan. This is Democracy Now! As we talk about President Biden signing into law the sweeping $739 billion Inflation Reduction Act. Back in a minute. Falling by the Ocean Blue. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden Tuesday signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, a sweeping $739 billion bill to address the climate crisis, reduce drug costs, establish a 15 percent minimum tax for large corporations. At a signing ceremony at the White House, Biden praised the IRA as one of the most significant measures in the history of the United States. This bill is the biggest step forward on climate ever, ever, and it's going to allow it's going to allow us to boldly take additional steps toward meeting all of my climate goals and the ones we set out when we ran. It includes ensuring that we create clean energy opportunities in frontline and fence line communities that have been smothered, smothered by the legacy of pollution, and fight environmental injustice that's been going on for so long. Despite Biden's high praise, many climate groups and indigenous land and water defenders have criticized the package for including major handouts to the fossil fuel industry, which were added to win the support of the conservative Democratic West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, the largest recipient of fossil fuel industry funding in Congress. The Center for Biological Diversity described the bill as a climate suicide pack. Among the concessions Manchin won was a side agreement to expedite fossil fuel permitting, including for the 
the controversial Mountain Valley pipeline. If built, it would carry 2 billion cubic feet of frack gas across more than 1,000 streams and wetlands in Appalachia, including parts of West Virginia. Last week, Democracy Now! spoke to Tara Hauska, indigenous lawyer, land and water defender, and founder of the GNU Collective, after the law, or the bill at that time, was passing in the Senate. You've got a bill that, in order to get access to renewable energy dollars and investments up front, the fossil fuel industry has handed off uh, millions and millions of acres of public lands, of waters, uh, side, side project deals where you see the rolling back of bedrock environmental law, all of this just to get investment into renewable energy. I mean, that is not a climate solution. Mother Nature is not dealing U.S. dollars. That's my response. Well, for more, we're joined in Rosendale, New York, by Ashley Dawson, professor of environmental humanities at the City University of New York, author of People's Power, Reclaiming the Energy Commons, and a member of the Public Power New York campaign. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Uh, professor Dawson, if you can start off re by responding to the law, uh, many environmental groups also, while harshly critical of what could have been in it, said, if this is the best we can get, we should start here. Can you talk about the pitfalls, but also um, what you think uh, can be accomplished under this new law? Okay, Amy, uh, it's good to be with you. I'll start by talking about some of the uh, positive sides of the law. Um, you know, it's called the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, but it's basically a climate bill since it includes $370 billion to address the climate emergency. And that includes a 10-year extension of existing credits for wind and solar. There are also provisions for consumer rebates for heat pumps, rooftop solar, um, purchases of electric vehicles. Um, and all these measures are projected to decrease U.S. carbon emissions by about 40 percent from 2005 levels by 2030. Uh, and that represents 80% of the U.S. commitment to the Paris Agreement of 2015, which was designed to keep global warming below two degrees uh, Celsius. So this is obviously absolutely crucial legislation. Um, and the fact that just a couple of weeks ago, it looked like um, any kind of measures to address the climate emergency were completely dead um, has led um, some environmental groups to really celebrate this. Um, you know, there are also other important measures here. Uh, there's methane regulation. Um, methane emissions have reached historic records in recent years because of the fracking revolution, um, and methane is 86 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So curbing methane is absolutely necessary. Um, and uh, it also closes some tax loopholes for wealthy people and big corporations, which is a climate measure, although it often isn't described that way, um, since uh, these wealthy people and corporations are responsible for so much of carbon emissions. Um, and then as you uh, uh, as President Biden said um, in the clip you played, uh, the measure also includes $60 billion worth of funding for uh, frontline and fenceline communities. So there are positive measures um, in the IRA, but there are also lots of uh, issues, as Tara Huska said in uh, her interview last week. Um, you've also been talking about the bill creating a lot of jobs in green energy and carbon reduction, but also concerns about uh, the non-unionized labor in that large area. Right, right. So, um, 
what the what the bill does is to essentially continue Obama era policies of providing tax credits to for-profit renewable energy companies. And that comes in um, the form of investment tax credits and production tax credits for clean energy projects. Um, Now, you know, the for-profit renewable energy sector is notoriously ununionized. Um, There are measures in the IRA which specify that their um, projects have to have um, uh, some kind of um, unionized elements, but we don't know whether that will act, how that will actually play out. Um, And there's a history here that we need to really unpack behind these tax breaks. These are policies that go all the way back to the the Reagan administration in the 1980s, um, which mean that developers who want to have some kind of new renewable energy program um, will get uh, tax credits for uh, generating solar power and uh, wind energy. The thing is, most of these developers don't owe taxes up front. They don't have any existing tax bills when they approach these projects. And that means that they need to partner with um, uh, third-party financial partners in order to take advantage of these tax credits. Who exactly are those uh, third-party financial partners? Well, they tend to be big banks like J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America. Um, So essentially, renewable energy developers kind of sell their tax breaks to these big banks in return for the upright funding that the banks invest in the project. It's a, it's a deal called tax equity. Um, the problem, though, is uh, that wind and farm developers sometimes can't attract enough tax equity partners. Um, and if that, doesn't, if that happens, then the projects don't actually get built. Um, so, you know, the projections about how this is going to decrease emissions by 40 percent are based on a, a history of um, a, attracting funding that we can't be absolutely sure will work, and which is quite problematic because it means essentially, you know, we're giving big banks um, deciding power over what projects get built and where they get built and, and who builds them. Um, and, uh, you know, we feel uh, at Public Power New York campaign that these decisions should be made genuinely democratically and projects should be built when um, and as needed, not depending on when they're going to make money for big banks. Let's end with that issue of public power. You wrote the book People's Power, Reclaiming the Energy Commons, and you're a member of the Public Power New York campaign. What is that and how can that be unleashed in the country? Well, the public power campaign began in New York state because we looked at what this history of tax credits for uh, for profit renewable corporations had accomplished. And we felt that it really uh, had not come uh, had not come through Uh, in New York state. We only have about four percent wind and solar power. Um, uh, and, And that's despite, you know, over a decade of these kinds of policies, and despite the passage of a law in 2019 in New York State called the Climate Act that mandates a very speedy transition to renewable energy. So what we felt was that we need to have uh, public power. We need to make sure that there is an entity which is democratically controlled, which can step in when market forces are not doing what we want them to do and what we need them to do, given the climate emergency. So um, the Public Power New York campaign 
has uh, put forward a bill which almost passed in the state legislature um, during the uh, last spring session, which would mandate that the New York Power Authority um, step in and uh, get the um, state to its renewable energy goals. Of uh, And the New York Power Authority is something that was created back during the New Deal era by Franklin Delano Roosevelt when he was governor of New York State. Um, and something quite similar was happening back then. Happening back then, um, you know, there were these for-profit utilities that were gouging people with high utility rates. And so FDR decided, well, you know, we need a kind of public alternative, um, something that can bring energy to people who need it and something that can charge affordable rates to people. And we feel that because of some of what I've outlined about how these tax credits put power in the hands of for-profit enterprises linked to big banks, which incidentally are the same banks which continue to fund fossil fuel projects, you know, we feel that we need a public alternative which can be democratically controlled and which can be mandated by law to build out renewables at the speed that we need to prevent the climate emergency, and which incidentally can also include very strong pro-union clauses so that we can be guaranteed that it's a just transition which saves uh, not just frontline communities, but also the working class more broadly. Ashley Dawson, we want to thank you for being with us, professor of environmental humanities at the City University of New York, author of People's Power, Reclaiming the Energy Commons. As we move on now to look at Tuesday's primaries, Liz Cheney, Trump's chief House Republican foe, has lost her primary in Wyoming. She addressed supporters Tuesday night in Jackson, Wyoming. Two years ago, I won this primary with 73% of the vote. I could easily have done the same again. The path was clear. But it would have required that I go along with President Trump's lie about the 2020 election. It would have required that I enable his ongoing efforts to unravel our democratic system and attack the foundations of our republic. That was a path I could not and would not take. Congressmember Liz Cheney was defeated by the Trump-backed candidate Harriet Hageman, who in 2016 said Trump would repel voters and called him racist and xenophobic. She addressed her supporters Tuesday. But I did not do this on my own. Obviously, we're all very grateful to President Trump, who recognizes that Wyoming has only one congressional representative, and we have to make it count. His, his clear and unwavering support from the very beginning propelled us to victory tonight. Meanwhile, Alaskan Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski and her fellow Republican rival Kelly Shabaka, who was endorsed by Trump, have both advanced to November's general election in Alaska. For more, we go to John Nichols, nation's national affairs correspondent, whose latest piece is headlined, I hope Liz Cheney wins, but I couldn't vote for her. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Well, she did not win. In fact, John Nichols, she was trounced. Yes, the vice chair of the January 6th committee investigating the attack on the U.S. Capitol lost by something like, I think, Hageman got two-thirds of the vote, one of the biggest trouncings um, in U.S. history in a primary. If you can talk about the significance of this um, and what this says about the Republican Party. Well, Amy, thanks for having me. And yes, it was an absolute wipeout. In fact, when all the votes are counted, uh, it looks like there's a very good chance that Harriet Hageman will defeat Liz Cheney 
by almost 40 percent, something in the range of of a 66 to 28 uh, break. So Cheney really struggled even to get a quarter of the vote in Wyoming, a state where, uh, as she noted, she won by wide margins in the past. What this really tells us is that Donald Trump's control of the Republican Party continues to advance. There were 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump in early 2021. Uh, four of them decided not to seek re-election, by and large, because they feared uh, being opposed by Trump in primaries. Uh, four more have now been defeated. Only two of them are still in the running at this point, and one of them could get beat ultimately. So we've ended up in a situation where we've got a clear signal. Standing up to Donald Trump in the Republican Party, by and large, leads to your defeat. It's not always guaranteed. There will be exceptions. But those really are the exceptions to the rule. And as we head toward the November elections, this clear message is that this is Donald Trump's Republican Party. I want to go back to Liz Cheney's concession speech Tuesday night. The great and original champion of our party, Abraham Lincoln, was defeated in elections for the Senate and the House before he won the most important election of all. So there you have it. She's um, talking about Abraham Lincoln losing a House race like her, uh, losing a Senate race and then going on to become president. Mm -hmm. Is she um, telling us something, John Nichols, (laughs) about what her plans are for the future? Of course she is. I've covered the Cheneys for a very long time and Liz Cheney since she before she came to Congress. The fact of the matter is she's incredibly ambitious. She is ambitious uh, for power. She wants to, to be a leading figure in our politics, just as her father did before her, Dick Cheney. And so uh, what she's talking about there is, first and foremost, maintaining her public profile. And she'll do that with the January 6th committee, where, frankly, she's done some very good work. Uh, but beyond that, I think she is signaling an openness to running for president of the United States, not announcing her candidacy, but certainly suggesting that she wouldn't mind if people talked about it, as we are right now, uh, and that she might do so in Republican primaries. She made a visit to New Hampshire not that long ago, or that she might do so as an independent. The bottom line is that Liz Cheney is not somebody who's going to walk away from politics. But the other thing to remember is that Liz Cheney is every bit as right-wing as Donald Trump, perhaps even a little more right-wing than him on some issues. And so uh, people should be very cautious about imagining that she would seek office in the future as uh, some sort of moderate Republican or something like that. That's not who she is. She has been good on standing up to Trump on these democracy issues. But the bottom line is she is an extreme right-wing conservative. And then we go to Alaska. Uh, If you first can talk about ranked choice voting, uh, the way the media covers it is you just got to be patient because Alaska, it takes forever for the results to come in. But explain the significance of it and why it might have saved Lisa Murkowski as she moves forward to the elections, the senator who I think Trump said uh, he perhaps despised the most. You're exactly right, Amy. In fact, uh, if Donald Trump had a a list of people he wanted to get rid of in this year's elections, Liz Cheney would definitely have topped it. But 
Lisa Murkowski would have been uh, very, very high on that list. And so Lisa Murkowski, who has opposed Trump on a number of issues, uh, is still a a moderate to conservative Republican, uh, was facing a Trump-backed candidate. But because of ranked choice voting, a system that allows multiple candidates to uh, be on the ballot, lets voters rank them one through four in the case of Alaska or, you know, down the list, uh, then the votes can be redistributed upwards. And so that's what will happen in November. Now, in the first primary, which has occurred today or occurred yesterday in Alaska, you have a full list of candidates. And in this case, the top four, not in a ranked choice system, but, but a top four go through to that ranked choice election in November. And so Lisa Murkowski will be one of the four that goes through. She will go through with a Trump-backed Republican and probably with a a lesser-known Democrat and maybe another candidate as well. Now, when you get to that November election, the ranked choice voting uh, will almost certainly, uh, it will certainly put Lisa Murkowski in the running, and it will give her a very good chance with the redistribution of votes from those two lesser candidates or two less-known candidates uh, give her a very good chance of winning the election, winning the election, and uh, going back to the Senate. And of course, um, there's Sarah Palin. Uh, Sarah Palin is uh, she's in two elections, or uh, was in two elections yesterday. In one election, which was a special election to fill the congressional seat of Don Young, a Alaska Congress, longtime Alaska congressman who passed away. Uh, she has come through in—it's a ranked-choice election. She's come through second to a woman named Mary Peltola, who has run a very good, very strong campaign as a Democrat. But there is another Republican in that ranked-choice vote, a guy named Nick Begich. His votes are likely to be redistributed more to Palin than to the Democrat. And so there's a decent chance that, that Palin will win, but not a certainty here. And so we've got to watch how that ranked choice uh, redistribution goes. That may take a couple weeks. The other thing, the second race that Palin was in is for November. She's one of the top four. So is the Democrat we spoke about. Uh, so is Nick Begich. And so we're going to do this all over again in November with ranked choice. I think the real takeaway here, though, is that there was a very substantial vote for a progressive Democrat in Alaska and uh, and that, you know, we should always look at these states that, that people often write off as, you know, all Republican. And these are only looking at the Republican races. Uh, the fact of the matter is that a progressive Democrat did very, very well in Alaska last night. Um, John Nichols, very quickly go across the country to Pennsylvania, the Senate race that could determine the balance of the Senate, Mehmet Oz uh, versus uh, Fetterman, uh, who just uh, survived a very serious health challenge. So you have the cardiologist versus the heart patient. He has been mocked, that is, uh, Mehmet Oz, for going into a grocery store, naming it wrong and talking about he was getting ingredients for crudite for his wife. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible race. Look, the bottom line is this. John Fetterman, uh, who has had some health challenges, is back on the, on the trail. He had a huge rally the other day in Erie where they opened up with ACDC's back in black blaring and the crowd cheering. And the fact of the matter is that Fetterman is running a very deep grassroots Pennsylvania campaign, looks to be well ahead in the polls. And, and Dr. Oz, uh, who lived in New Jersey before he got into this race, we have 10 seems seconds. to keep on— he seems to keep on stumbling. He looks like a candidate that Trump put ahead into the into the final race, but not somebody that Trump can get elected. 
John Nichols, we want to thank you for being with us. The nation's national affairs correspondent will link to your piece. I hope Liz Cheney wins, but I couldn't vote for her. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman. Wear a mask. Stay safe.